Welcome to Conceptually Speaking, the show where we interview experts in a variety of fields to uncover the systems and patterns that help us to conceptualize and reconceptualize our world. I'm Julie Stern, founder and principal facilitator for Learning That Transfers. And I'm Trevor Elio, English language arts lead for Learning That Transfers. This podcast uses our mental model as a sense-making tool through requiring, connecting, and transferring conceptual relationships to unlock new situations. Our guests identify three to five concepts at the heart of their field, and we discuss how those play out in a variety of settings. You can find out more about our work, including our online courses and other professional learning offerings at learningthattransfers.com. On this episode of Conceptually Speaking, Julie and I are joined by the ineffable Annie Murphy-Paul, a writer covering science and cognition, as well as the author of The Extended Mind, The Power of Thinking Outside the Brain. To say that Julie and I were excited about this episode would be a mild understatement. Both of us had ravenously consumed The Extended Mind prior to recording, and were blown away by both its ambition and clarity. Over the course of her book and this conversation, Annie details the power of what she calls extending our mind through practices like externalizing information, making abstractions tangible, spatializing knowledge, and even using our bodies to make meaning. This ability to extend our mind challenges many of the deeply held myths about the separation of mind and body that have come to dominate the ways we conceive thinking, learning, and reductive notions of intelligence in Western society. In fact, Annie's work even transformed her own beliefs and practices about thinking. So I, I began this research as a brain-bound person working in a brain-bound way. And I it was a process in, um, in the course of reading all this research and being persuaded by it, being sort of won over by it myself, that I started to incorporate more and more of these um, techniques into, into my own work. So things like um, I would start working in the morning and, and be doing that intensive reading and thinking, and then I would break and take a bike ride. And, and, the, and I, you know, inevitably, it would be when I'm like, you know, on my bike, on the bike path that, I would get the idea that made it all fit to get the, the day's work all kind of fit together, you know, and I really think it was that kind of the movement, the being outside, the dynamic sense of forward movement, you know, that primed my brain to kind of think in that way. So much of the research that Annie has compiled has immediate and tangible applications to education, aligning beautifully with our work with Learning the Transfers. As educators and researchers, her debunking of Descartes' error truly captured our imaginations. We hope this episode will do the same for you. Enjoy. Welcome, Annie. Thank you for joining us today. Hey, I'm so glad to be here. So I want to jump right into things. And before we started recording, I was sort of previewing this question a little bit. I want to know how you got started discussing the ideas in the extended mind, because as you detail throughout the book, it does kind of go against the grain culturally when you think about what the conversations are happening about how we think, um, computational theories of the mind. Uh, so what kind of inspired you, what led you to find this countercultural perspective on the way that we think and the way that our minds work? Yes. Well, I love that question because it kind of leads me to reveal the secret history of this book, which is that it started out being something totally different. I, uh -huh. um, <laughs> I t about 10 years ago, or maybe even longer than that, I had started to 
specialize um, as a journalist. I'm a journalist, a science writer who covers, but now I cover research and learning and cognition, but in general, I've, I've covered psychology and cognitive science across my career. And I had become very interested about a decade ago in the science of learning. And that's partly me search. You know, I have two sons who are now in junior high and high school, but at the time they were really just starting school. And I was getting very interested in how they were learning, how their teachers were teaching them. And at the same time, from a professional point of view, there were there was incredibly exciting, interesting stuff happening in the field of the science of learning. And I wanted mm -hmm. to bring that research to the attention of teachers and administrators and parents and students. Um, so I thought I would write a book about the science of learning. And I worked really hard <laughs> to make that happen, but it didn't, it, it couldn't make it happen for this reason that, um, for me as a as a book author and this is my third book i need a big idea and and preferably a um a counterintuitive surprising fresh you know um transformative hopefully idea to make it all worth it you know to make it worth it to to um the to go through the long slog that that a writing a book involves. And I know you guys have written a book, so you know how that goes. And with the science of learning, I wasn't finding it because, and I eventually came to think, well, what I was finding was that there were all these um, very interesting, very useful techniques that, um, that teachers should definitely know about. And more and more teachers, I think, are tuning into the cognitive science behind learning. Um, things like retrieval practice and um, spaced repetition and things like that. But I wasn't seeing the big idea that pulled it all together. And eventually I came to think that, well, you know, there is no grand overarching theory, unified theory of learning because the brain is this quirky evolved organ that didn't, no one designed it. No one like planned it out to learn in certain ways. It learns the way it does because that's what aided our survival. And yet what we do now in school, in the workplace is so different from what our ancestors had to do to survive. And so we've had to, you know, the science of learning is almost about filling in these for these gaps, you know, between what the, the brain evolved to do and what we expect it to do in schools today. And so <clears throat> if I were to write a, a book about the science of learning, I felt like it was just going to be a manual of techniques, you know, and that's a very useful thing. And, and um, I think there are books like that out there, but I couldn't, I wasn't finding the idea that really changed the way I thought about learning and education. And, and yet I was coming across all these bodies of research that were so fascinating to me. And so they were really you know, I, they really did make me sit up and think, wow, this is cool. This is really surprising and interesting. They were things like embodied cognition, you know, the idea that we think with our bodies and um, situated cognition, the idea that we think differently depending on where we are and socially distributed cognition, the idea that we don't think with our individual brains, we, we join up, up our minds with other people's minds and generate a kind of collective intelligence. And so I, I, you know, was sort of <laughs> for years, literally <clears throat> was sort of wading around or diving deep into these um, bodies of research and thinking these are related somehow. These, these add up to something, but I just, I don't know what it is. Mm. And then I came across an article written by two philosophers. So, you know, I was really like 
You know, I've, I've read very widely for this <laughs> yes, book. Yourself, yeah. <laughs> I drew from many, many disciplines and for this book. And so, uh, yes, the, these two philosophers wrote an article in 1998. I read it years later, but uh, <clears throat> laying out their theory of what they called the extended mind. And, you know, the first line I was, they had me at the first line in, in that article because they wrote, um, where does the world where does the mind stop and the rest of the world begin? And, you know, the, they, they, it's a provocative question because we think we know the answer to that, right? Like we think, oh, well, the mind ends at the skull, the mind ends at the boundaries of the head, um, and then the rest of the world is out there. And they were saying, no, um, actually thinking processes are spread across our bodies and our surroundings and other people's minds. And think the thinking process is a much more dynamic and inclusive process than we realize. And I was, you know, I'm a sucker for a big idea, a big counterintuitive provocative idea. So they, they had me right away. And I saw that this idea of the extended mind could unify all these threads of research that I've been sort of gathering for years. And interestingly, these two philosophers, Andy Clark and David Chalmers, they were most interested in how we extend our minds with tools. And th they were writing in 1998, so this is before smartphones. Uh, they were actually in the, that paper, they mostly used the example of a notebook, like a paper notebook and how that extends our thought processes when it becomes part of our our thinking routines. Um, but then subsequently, you know, with, as, as smartphones arrived on the scene and we started downloading mental functions to our smartphones, it became this almost proof of concept, you know, that what had seemed like this really crazy wacky idea was like, well, yeah, I, I guess I do, I do extend my mind with my smartphone. So their emphasis and the emphasis of, um, the, the, the study of the extended mind that grew up out of that paper mostly focused on technology and, and um, the way our devices extend our minds. But I thought it was more interesting to look at how these other resources, like the body, like physical space, like other people's minds, um, it, it, uh, the, all of those things are drawn into our thinking. And that to me was the big idea that anchored my book um, to say, you know what, we, we have our idea of where thinking happens and how thinking happens is all wrong. You know, it doesn't happen in here. It happens out here. And that the exciting and optimistic thing about that for me was that it gave us so many more options. It's like, no, you don't, you don't just have to sit there and keep working your brain until you get it. Like, you could go for a walk, mm -hmm. you could, you could gesture, you could um, go outside, you could be put yourself in a different setting, you could um, tell a story or engage in an argument with another person. And all these things are fruitful ways of thinking that are denied to us when we think that thinking means sitting still at your desk alone, you know, mm -hmm. which is kind of how we think of thinking. So mm -hmm. to me, that was such an exciting and promising idea that you know, then, then everything kind of fell into place. 
then it's all incredible. I had to do was write the book. Right, <laughs> right. It's it's absolutely incredible. Um, there, you know, I will say this: this is a book that I, it tra- it transformed me, Annie. I will say that. Mm-hmm. I mean, it really Thank did. It's it's excellent, and it's something that I know we will go back to again and again and again. And you know, we're on it. Speaking of the the sort of relational um, bucket, I think I thought a lot through all of the, that whole section. I thought a lot about the tre- the team, the learning that transverse team, um, because we are super collaborative. I love the idea of, uh, you know, we often say, I don't know who came up with, you know, our learning mm-hmm. transfer mental mm-hmm. model or whatever, because mm-hmm. it really mm-hm. wasn't one of us. We all it was did. All yeah. of us. Yeah. 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 Um, and so anytime anybody wants to do anything with our model, I'm like, I got to ask my three co-authors because mm-hmm. it's not, it's, you know, it's like, mm-hmm. it's not mine. Mm-hmm. Um, it's all mm-hmm. of ours. And so, you know, I loved that part. Um, but there was so much about it. It's, this is one. So speaking of what we typically do when there's a foundational book in, in the, in the field or a study, of course, uh, we'll usually say, okay, Trevor will read that one or Kayla will read that one. And we'll kind of type up some little Cliff's Notes version of it. This is one I'm like, no, 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 everybody on the team has to buy this book because it's, it's, it's so, it's so rich. I think, you know, what, what I love about what you did is it's, it's deep in the research. I mean, it's, it's Mm -hmm. almost like, so I was saying to Annie before we started recording that I listened to it. I got two little kids. So I was like, okay, I got to listen to this. I got to finish this before she comes on our podcast. (laughs) Um, and so I was listening to it at two times speed. Um, and so it, but I was just like, it felt like, and another study that that's going to blow your mind and another (laughs) study that's going to blow your mind. It's it's not like, it's not like you just took one thing and you were like, see how this thing, which is scientifically sound proves it. It's like so many different studies Mm -hmm. and the way in which you synthesized it is just excellent. So we always ask our guests to identify three concepts to kind of anchor the conversation. And I just thought, okay, well, the way in which your book is organized is so that's how it is. It's part one, part two, part three, thinking with our bodies, thinking with our surroundings and thinking with our relationships. Mm-hmm. Um, so I don't know if mm-hmm. that's how we want to go with the conversation, but bodies, surroundings and relationships. First, how did you even, how did you see that? how did you see those yeah. three buckets? Oh, that took a long time, you know, and that's, <laughs> I think that it's a kind of testament to the way this can work, which is you immerse yourself in the granular details and the, you know, the, the facts and the information, and then only gradually does the, um, the big picture emerge for you. At least that's how it worked for me. And, you know, I, I, I know that, um, one way that learning scientists talk about, about a, a kind of ideal, um, path for learning is like a spiraling, um, path where you kind of revisit the same information over and over again. And I, I did that almost by accident because I, again, I was searching for the the spine of the book, the thing that would pull it all together. And so I kept revisiting these bodies of research and it was only over time that um, those, I think of them as sort of concentric circles, you know, starting from the body, which is the most intimate and personal mm. of them. And then um, there's our, our surroundings, which are right at our fingertips. And then there's our relationships with other people. Um, and rippling kind of outward. And I think you could even say it goes one or two steps further than from, from your own personal relationships to society and how mm-hmm. the society and the culture that you're in 
affects the way you think, you know, that maybe, maybe my next book, <laughs> but, um, but it's one of those things where once you hit on that structure and it's a very simple structure in a way, um, but it, it, it wasn't simple to get there. You know, it took a lot of, it took a lot of reading and researching and thinking, and as you say, synthesizing to get that structure. One of the things that I enjoyed the most about the book is, is not only the amount of research, but, but the breadth. Um, there is so much cognitive science research out there and it's, it is making its way into education. But as you were kind of alluding to right now, it is, it's like a little reductive. It's, it's about memory. It's about retrieval. It's about, um, sort of pulling to mind facts as opposed to picturing all of the different ways that our cognition works. Mm. And I was really just blown away by the fact that, I um, mean, it's interesting to hear that you had gone down that path and then realized that there is a, a bigger idea there. Mm -hmm. um, and what I'm kind of, of curious about is as you were looking at each of these individual studies and immersing yourselves in the research, how did you track your own thinking in order to see those big mm -hmm. ideas emerge? Did you have mm -hmm. a, a concept map that you were organizing or creating how much of you know were you proving the proof of concept as you were planning this book <laughs> yeah well <laughs> I do say I do write in the book that I don't think I could have written this book without the benefit of what I learned from writing this book and that's very true it's very meta but like um you know and the thing is uh, so I talk in the book about how our culture is very brain bound meaning we have this assumption that thinking happens up here and that all we need to do to think well is to cultivate the brain instead of learning these skills of, of drawing in outside resources um, into our thinking. And I will admit, I have always been a very brain bound person. You know, mm. I'm some, someone who, who does like to sit and think and who does kind of, I do, I mean, I'm a freelance writer. I work alone, you know, I, and I, you know, um, am immersed in, in, in all this, um, very high level sort of, you know, journal articles and trying to, to translate that for a wider audience. So I, I began this research as a brain bound person working in a brain bound way. And I, it was a process in, um, in the course of reading all this research and being persuaded by it, being sort of won over by it myself, that I started to incorporate more and more of these, um, techniques into, into my own work. So things like, um, I would start working in the morning and, and be doing that intensive reading and thinking, and then I would break and take a bike ride. And, and the, and mm. I, you know, inevitably it would be when I'm like, you know, on my bike, on the bike path that I would get the idea that made it all fit to get the, the day's work all kind of fit together, you know, and I really think it was that kind of the movement, the being outside, the dynamic sense of forward movement, you know, that primed my brain to kind of think in that way. Um, you, you see, you, I don't know if you're, I don't know if you're going to use the video here, but, but um, Trevor and Julie can see that I'm using my hands a lot and I've always been like a gesture and I always felt a little embarrassed about that. So I think I also learned to accept the fact that our gestures, our hand movements are a part of our thinking process and are often like a step ahead of where our, where our mental thoughts are. Um, and then, you know, the, probably the finding or the body of, of research that made the most difference for me in terms of writing the book was the stuff about cognitive offloading, the idea that we do too much in our heads. We expect ourselves to do too much in our heads. And there's such a benefit, so many, such a range of benefits that you get from offloading this, getting the stuff out of your head onto physical space, and then 
manipulating those ideas and pieces of information as if they're physical objects or navigating through them like it's a 3D landscape, you know, I mean, I do have a big empty wall in my office and I am a pro- prolific user of, of post-it notes. That's my particular cognitive offloading strategy. And we share that addiction. <laughs> <laughs> right. And, uh, and I'm just thinking of all the books that wouldn't have been written if there weren't for post-it notes. That's right. That's right. What, a beautiful, what, a beautiful <laughs> what a beautiful invention. Yeah. So, um, but, um, you know, the, the, I, I think Julie said something earlier before we started the podcast about like, there's so much research that shows like why the rationale behind what we do, what we do or something like that, Julie. And I, I really, uh, there's, you know, not that there is not lots of research. I, I hope that I report in the book that's surprising and that's counterintuitive, but there's a lot of things. And I've heard this from a lot of readers that they had found their way to some of these solutions. They had, mm-hmm. you know, very, ex- mm-hmm. very experienced teachers who had mm-hmm. learned to incorporate movement into their classroom activities or who had learned to harness students' social um, natures in, in the service of learning in the way that, that we now know is very, from research is, is very um, beneficial, but um, it's still, it's, it's really um, gratifying to, to know that there right. is solid science behind things that many teachers had found their way to either instinctively or kind of through trial and error and through experience. So I think a, lo- a lot of, a lot of, I'm glad that uh, what the presence of all this research that's in the book, it's it partly, it confirms a lot of mm-hmm. what, uh, a lot of, um, lived knowledge that that teachers are bringing to their craft. That's right. Like we all know, you know, I, I feel like we know what it's like to go for an, go for a, a walk in nature. We we know how it feels, you know, when when we experience that green space and things like that, or right. even or even just clearing our desk and you know putting a nice candle or you know things like that. We sort of know that that has a positive benefit. But I think what's what's surprising is how deep the research Mm -hmm, is and how mm -hmm. profound Mm -hmm. of an impact. Like we're not talking, you know, a tiny little nudge, like huge impact on people's well-being and on their cognition that it's not just sort of for your mental health, but you actually can think better um, in a more sort of academic way uh, when you employ a lot of these things. And I think that's, there's so much in your book that is aligned to what we, I almost wish we, we, you would have written this. We wrote at probably the same time because our book came out in March. Um, but, you know, I was just like, gosh, I wish we would have had this to cite it when we wrote Learning That Transfers because there's so much parallel there. And so it, it was it was for me really gratifying to see so many things that we kind of instinctively knew was re- were really good for our students. And we did know some research, of course, in body cognition is research, um, but just how, like Trevor said, how broad and deep uh, the studies were, were, was, were really nice. And, you know, it was at first for me, I want to, I want to make a reference for our listeners who are familiar with our work um, to when I first, the first part bodies or, or, or um, I, I, I think that's the part where I, we could probably do better, huh, Trevor? We could probably do, we do, we do concept charades. I made a gem of like 600 teachers play concept charades 
Um, and it was so, it was, it brought so much laughter to the room. It was almost just like, what am I going to do with these teachers after lunch? They're in the gym with me all day. Um, but, you know, we know with students that it's really beneficial to get them to illustrate. Can you show me what this mathematical concept is with your body? Um, and so kids love to play charades. They love to play Pictionary. So that's been something that, of course, we know the research from Robert Marzano, one of the most famous researchers in, in the field of education on non-linguistic representation presentations, getting students to draw, getting students to act things out. Um, but that section was where I said, you know what I love the most about the connection to our work is we talk about relationships between and among concepts. And we, what we do is we encourage teachers to put concept, ask the students to put concepts on sticky notes and then arrange them. So, you know, how does force and energy and gravity interact? arrange them uh, out. And that's kind of that offloading piece. You also talk about concept mapping. Um, but what I loved in the movement part, in the, in the body uh, section of your book, is that the relationship changed in how we think about uh, bodily sensation and thinking. So we, so we talk about, we talk about recursive learning. So by the time I got to the conclusion and you were really hitting, you have this whole section on loopy. We are loopy creatures. We, <laughs> you know, we, we think recursively, we revisit our, our understanding. Um, and that's something we're always pushing for teachers to explain to students that learning is not, I know it now I'm good. I can move okay. on, mm -hmm. um, which a little bit of this mastery kind of conversation in the U.S. Uh, gets me a little bit nervous of like, I've mastered it, move on. And I'm like, well, mm -hmm. it's not quite mm. what learning it's not, is. It's not a one shot <laughs> deal. Yeah. Right, um, right. And so there is, you know, sort of somewhat of that. And so I just loved that piece. This is when I decided I have to buy the physical book. I was like, this is it. I'm going to, how much money am I going to spend on this? But uh, <laughs> I loved, you know, I just said, I need the physical book in my hand because I had to see it. You talked about how we originally thought we as human, as human, not me, <laughs> but mm -hmm. I haven't thought this hard about what comes first, but, mm -hmm. but you know, humans thought uh, first you, you think I'm scared, mm -hmm. therefore mm -hmm. my heart's going to race and my palms are going to get sweaty, but so much research has made us reconsider, mm -hmm. you, you know, what we are seeing now with the research is actually your heart starts racing mm -hmm. and then your brain goes, I'm scared. And the, exactly. the research with the stock on the, the stock market mm -hmm. and the, you know, that was like any person who thinks that this is woo woo, you know, for hippies or whatever <laughs> it, you, you, and it's not just in New York city. It was also done in London where they're looking at traders on the floor of the stock exchange. Can you talk a little bit about that? Just yeah. for our listeners who, have, Julie, who don't you know have, what I'm talking you about. You have read this book very, <laughs> very carefully, I can tell. Uh, yeah, so that was a really interesting study and that relates to this concept of interoception, which is not a word that I had ever encountered before I started doing this research, but it's basically a fancy word for gut feelings. You know, the, mm. this, this sense that many of us, you know, that all of us probably have had where, um, we get a, a feeling or a, a notion that doesn't seem to come from our head, but seems to arise from our bodies. And the study that Julie is referring to about um, financial traders on a, a, a trading floor in London showed that um, when scientists gave them a test of interoceptive attunement, in other words, how in tune they were to their, how sensitive they were to their, the internal signals of their bodies. And the test that um, scientists use to gauge that is a heartbeat detection test. The heart 
kind of stands in as a, a proxy for all those, the range of internal sensations that we feel from within our body. But the tests ask people to say when their heart is beating. And interestingly, there's a really wide range. There's a lot of individual difference in how accurate and, and, and even whether people feel like that's even possible, you know, I was like, do, do I know when my heart beats? I was listening to you talking about right, this. I was right, like, I don't, right. I don't know. Right. Right. But it may be the case, Julie, that you could just, well, you could say, well, I, I don't think I do, but let me just give it a guess. Mm-hmm. And you'd actually be a lot more accurate than you, than you realize. Um, but what was so interesting about this study was that, um, the site, the, the researchers, uh, gave this heartbeat detection test to a group of, of finance, professional financial traders, and then to a group of just kind of people off the street, you know, a control group. And it turned out that the financial traders were much more accurate at sensing their own heartbeat at being in, they were much more attuned to their body's internal signals. And moreover, within that group of, of financial traders, the ones who were the most um, it, attuned to their internal signals were the ones who made the most money and who stayed the longest, who hung on the longest in this sort of very, you know, volatile profession. They were, they were um, long haulers, you know, and, and were, were, were among the more profitable of the um, uh, of the of the traders, and so what fascinated me about this study is that we it, we think of of finance as like this, you know, the province of like the big brains, you know, who can mm-hmm. crunch the numbers mm-hmm. and like be very cerebral about making profit and loss or um, cost benefit kind of choices. But in fact, it was the people who were the most attuned to their bodies who were the most successful, and that to me was just kind of mind blowing that like, mm-hmm. actually the body has so much to contribute to our thinking, but we, because of the cultural biases that are so prominent in our society and in Western society, that mind and body are separate and that the body is irrational and has nothing to contribute to, to intelligent thought. Um, we tend to sort of push that aside when really we should be cultivating that. Mm-hmm. And that's speaking to that. I was really excited when I saw you reference Antonio Damasio's work in your mm-hmm. book in Descartes' Error, and kind of yes. pulling uh, a thread through two conversational points that we've had. On the one hand, so many of the things that you talk about and that you referenced, like you've said, teachers have arrived to sort of organically. On the other hand, some of those things feel like they are almost I, I, I looked down upon, or at least not seen mm-hmm. as a resource or a tool within Western culture and society. Mm-hmm. I think about like, it's, it's almost like an insulting meme when teachers are like, oh, what are you going to interpretively dance your answer? And it's like, well, yes, mm-hmm. I can, because I can use the body and gestures to make meaning, blah, blah, right, blah. Right. But I'm just sort of curious how deep you got into the weeds about how come so many of these ideas are intuitive, like literally hardwired into a physiology. And yet our culture seems so resistant to them. And does it go back to like the enlightenment, Descartes, like how far back do you think yeah. this goes and how much did you yeah. dig into that tension? Yeah. No, Trevor, that's a great question because I found that again and again, you know, the idea that you would make a decision partially based or informed by your gut feelings is thought of, is looked down upon, you know, as opposed to purely rational thought, whatever mm-hmm. that would be, or move or gesturing is, is thought to be, you know, just sort of hand waving and like, you know, it's sort of gauche or, you know, it gets mm-hmm. in the way of, of what you're saying. Cause that's what really matters is the mm-hmm. verbal part of your message. Mm-hmm or even something like fidgeting, you know, like, which um, turns out to be a really, really fine grained way to modulate your physical arousal students or, or others 
physiological arousal so that you're in that place where you're like alert enough, but not overstimulated, you know, um, but fidgeting, we look down upon as if that's sort of, it's sort of almost suspicious or, you know, mm-hmm. like what, mm-hmm. what, why can't that guy keep his hands still? And then beyond that, things like imitation, you know, I write about how important, how, how important imitation is as a strategy for learning. And yet our culture celebrates innovation so much and looks down upon imitation as just sort of lazy copying or even like plagiarism or something. So again, and again, and again, it was like anything that is not a purely brain bound strategy is, is dismissed, is um, looked down upon, is scorned, you know, and yet I think the, you know, people who teach for a living, who are immersed in this, this project of learning for a living know that when we do that, we cut off so many sources of intelligence. We, we cut off like these robust and very human sources of intelligence and that's a waste and that's not something we want to do. So they kind of, they creep back in, but, but almost like, you know, a little apologetically, like we don't, we don't, you know, we, we, we do it for fun or around the edges or something, but really we can put that stuff at the heart of our teaching and our education because that's where it belongs. You know I mean? If we are teaching whole human beings and we are ourselves whole human beings, then we need to, we need to, and we, you know, we want to use every one of those um, resources that, that we're all endowed with. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I was struck with the, in the, the first section on movement. Um, and again, I think that was the area that I felt we could do a little bit better uh, on about how vast the research is. I don't know about you, Trevor, and even asking you, Annie, as a mom of two kids, it it almost felt like, what are we doing? Like right now, we got to get kids moving. (laughs) You know, I mean, it it felt, it felt like this is, everybody needs to know this, like a shout from the rooftop kind of moment. Mm. So Mm, much, you know, has to change. And, you know, I remember I'm writing a book for leaders. Um, We had first with, with another author named Julie Jungawala, and we had first thought, okay, hurry, this is our moment. Let's seize the moment. The COVID situation as uh, getting leaders to really transform the way in which we do school. And then, and then Delta came and we were like, okay, so let's back up and let's, let's, let's like do a, a bit more research and try to write an even more profound book. Um, and, you know, we had just written a couple of blogs about this quote learning loss and, you know, the things that the narrative that was, were coming out of uh, the, the last year. And I was just like, look today, if we gave more recess Mm-hmm. And in that time, teachers were collaborating and planning better lessons. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So we could instantly, in a, in a decision, improve mm. teaching and learning and the well-being of everybody involved. Uh, you know, and it's just it's, it was just one of those moments. I don't know what you guys felt about that. Yeah. Well, it, well, it, 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 mean, oh, oh, go ahead. I was just going to say it's interesting you mentioned COVID, Julie, because I think um, the the you know the the we all teachers and schools and students had to shift immediately into this mode that no one was prepared for and no one you know thought was ideal. But I think it showed us in a way how impoverished our model of of um, thinking and learning is. Because I mean, when during all those months when kids were doing remote schooling, how much movement were they were they getting? You know what I mean? I mean probably even less than, than they do in the regular school day. And I, um, I think, I think it, 
the pandemic was almost this gigantic natural experiment that cut a lot, cut us off from many of the mental extensions that help us think intelligently. Mm. We, we weren't mm. interacting with people in person. We weren't getting out and, and being in new and stimulating environments. And many of us were not moving around. We weren't commuting and we weren't, you know, out and about, we were just kind of like sitting in front of, we were brains in front of screens for mm. 18 months. And I think we felt it. We felt that our, we're not as sharp. We're not thinking as well as we, as we used to. And mm. I, I hope it can kind of be a moment when we realize like, Oh no, just being a brain is not enough. And that's not mm -hmm. how we want to think about our students. That's not how we want to think about ourselves. This is a moment when we can embrace the wholeness of, of who we are as people and draw on all the richness of that's at our disposal. Yeah. And I, as a classroom teacher, I felt that so much and, and I'm someone, I mean, I am, I, I would like to think that I'm very adept with technology. Like I record a podcast, I design our website. Like I am, I'm good with the technology, but like last year teaching felt so much harder. I felt like I was yeah. juggling so many more things. I felt like I had so many tools taken out of my toolkit. I felt like, um, my ability to connect and collaborate with my students um, was was way more limited. And it mm. just it, it's so interesting to think about, you know, and, and I had a hard time. Like, like, why am I having such a difficult time doing things that I used to do? Like, you know, mm -hmm. I used to do concept mapping and now I'm doing it on like, you know, a Google Doc or, or like a Jamboard. Mm -hmm. And it's like mm -hmm. it still is the same. Right. And, and now I'm, I'm sort of seeing and wondering why some of those things maybe can can mm -hmm. have a, a affordances but mm -hmm. also have boundary conditions where it's just not quite, you don't have quite the same experience when you lose that embodied sense of right. what's happening. So I, I'm kind of right. curious if you were to pick out one or two of the, the top things that you feel like are most possible for a teacher tomorrow in their classroom to potentially bring mm -hmm. into their practice, if that's not too specific of a question, what do you think mm -hmm. they would be? Hmm. Movement is one of them for sure. I think we've been talking about that. I mean, um, and not just recess, but actually bringing movement into, into the process of learning. I mean, I love the research that I report on in the book about the value of acting out um, various processes or, you know, conceptual ideas. And one of the things I love about that is that it turns out that professional scientists like identify with the thing that they're studying and they, they act it out or they imagine themselves and their own bodies into the scenario that they're investigating. And yet when we teach kids science, we, we like, we impose this idea that like, no, you can't anthropomorphize this. You can't, you know, you mm -hmm. can't make it subjective or personal. This is science and this make is Make a objective. note in your log. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And, and, and yet professional scientists, you know, world-class scientists are, they use every tool at their disposal, including their bodies, including their own subjective experiences to understand the phenomenon that they're investigating. And so isn't that such a richer way of portraying science and getting kids to engage in science, to bring their bodies into it and to have them act out, you know, as maybe as a class, like the process of meiosis and mitosis or whatever, you know what I mean? Like, I just think there's so many possibilities there that, and, and it could almost be as we, as we hopefully gather in classrooms again, it could almost be a celebration of like, here we are together in this, you know, we're a bunch of yeah. human beings in a room together. Let's use that. You know, we've missed that. And now we get, we get, now we know how much it matters and we can really um, put it to use for our learning. You, you asked for a couple. The other I would say is, and I know, I know teachers already do this and I'm very, 
I don't ever want to suggest that this is all like brand new information for teachers, because as I say, a lot of them have, you know, they have found their way to these techniques already. But I really do think I see this all the time that we think of intellectual life, mental life and social life as separate and, and opposed. It's kind of like, okay, kids, like, have your social life at lunch or, you know, at recess. And then, but then when you come into the classroom, you put that all aside, but humans are social all the time. You know, I mean, we're, we're fundamentally social creatures and it doesn't make sense to cut off that really rich source of, um, of, of, of thinking and, 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 the, and, um, and creating that emerges out of our social nature. So let's think about how to harness our social natures and kids, especially adolescents. I mean, they're all about their social worlds. And instead of asking them to shut that down when they get to school, let's think about how to harness that in the service of learning, you know, by having them teach each other or tell stories to each other or argue and debate with each other and activate those social parts of ourselves in the service of learning. Mm. And that's ties so beautifully into, so two chapters in our book ex explore um, disciplinary literacy and modern literacies. Mm. Um, and our framing of literacy is coming from a, a bunch of researchers um, who are looking at it as a social process, not just a cognitive process. And we do think it's really important for kids to develop the cognitive processes that help them view content the way that an expert does. But it's equally important that they develop the ability to engage in some of the social practices that mm. people within different mm -hmm. disciplines do. So mm -hmm. it's not just mm -hmm. that we want kids to develop a, you know, an understanding of the relationship between claims, evidence and reasoning. We want to think about, OK, well, how do uh, you know, people who are bloggers, how do they construct a argument or how do people who are members of a podcasting community have conversations in a different way based right. on the norms and structures of that community. And it's, it's this sort of realization that, um, like you said, uh, our, our mind and our social practices and our academic learning and our social learning aren't in opposition to one another. They're, they support mm -hmm. each other. Were there any um, specific educators or educational researchers that you kind of spoke to or got ideas from that, that are looking at both sides of that coin? Because I, I find that it feels like a lot of like the sociocultural research and conceptions of literacy are in one bucket and then cognitive mm -hmm. ones are in the other. So how did, mm. did you speak to anyone in those different groups or anybody who's synthesizing them? Interesting. Well, what was, what I was thinking of when you were talking there, Trevor, was how brain bound our notion of expertise is like, we think mm -hmm. of experts as an expert is someone who does it all in their head, you know, but mm. actually that's wrong. Like experts are the ones who are so good at using every resource available to them, their bodies, their spaces, uh, the minds of other people, that's what makes them expert. And so to the extent that we're sort of nurturing our students along the way from novice to expert, that's what we want them to be emulating. And so I love that you are focusing on the social practices of experts and how that's, that's just, that's so much the essence of what it means to be expert or proficient at a particular discipline. And so it, again, it makes no sense to cut out that social part as if that's frivolous or irrelevant. Mm -hmm. But in terms of researchers, um, you know, I, I think of, of the, the, you know, I, I make reference in the book to a famous article by John Seely Brown and a couple of other um, researchers about cognitive apprenticeships, you know, mm -hmm. that this idea mm -hmm. that, um, 
so much, you know, a, a, the traditional apprenticeship relationship was a, a master craftsman showing an apprentice, mm-hmm. literally showing them how to physically do something. If that apprentice, if that uh, if that master craftsman was a, a carpenter or a tailor, but then so much of what we do now is, is mental is internal work. And so we need to find better ways to, to affect that transfer. Well, you guys are all about transfer, but um, <laughs> from, from one brain to another. And a lot of that has to do with the expert, which is usually, you know, the teacher making his or her expertise visible and accessible to, to the, um, to the student. And so we need Mm -hmm. to think about that. um, Think about those blind spots that we have by virtue of being experts and how to break that down. Um, So I find that to be a really interesting approach. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. This is somewhat related to that, the topic of sort of sociolinguistics, but you, I saw that you mentioned on Twitter and also, of course, you mentioned it a couple of different times in the book about equity or inequity. Um, I believe you have it both in the introduction and the conclusion. Mm -hmm. And so, and, you know, uh, I don't know, I think we weren't quite recording when you, when you said maybe my next book, or maybe we were recording, Mm -hmm. so I can't remember, Mm -hmm. but, um, you know, I'm just wondering if, if you could give us a little bit more uh, than you did in the book of, of Mm -hmm. your thinking on the relationship between what you found and inequity in society. Yeah. I'm so glad you mentioned that. You mentioned that, Julie, because it's really important to me. And I, you know, I, I did touch on it in the book, but I didn't, I wasn't able to dig into it as much as maybe I would like to, or as maybe I, I will in the future. Mm-hmm. But yeah, the idea is that, you know, this brain bound idea again is that this brain bound notion is that intelligence is like a lump of stuff that's, that's located inside our heads and um, it's bigger in some people and smaller in others. And, you know, we can measure it almost like we're weighing it, you know, with an IQ test and it's, it's fixed and stays the same for, for life and whatever. And the extended mind offers a very different vision, which is no, actually intelligence is being constantly assembled, you know, from, from um, all the raw materials that we have available. And that's what determines how well and how intelligently we're able to think. So once you take that perspective, it's like, well, the quality of the materials that you have, the raw materials that go into your thinking process, that really matters. And then a step beyond that is, well, the the quality, the materials that people have to think with are in no way equitably distributed in our society, as we know, you know, if you just, you could run down my table of contents, you know, and say, you know, not, people do not have the same freedom to move their bodies. People don't have the same access to green natural spaces. People don't have the same access to quiet private spaces that they control, you know, to do their work. And people don't have the same access to, um, you know, effective teachers or um, connected mentors or um, ambitious peers, you know, all these things that matter, they matter so much to how well we think. And yet, so there's, there's so much that we're missing. And, you know, um, there's, there's, uh, there's so much that we're overlooking when we think, oh, well, you can just test what's in here. And that's, that's the end of the story, you know, and I, I actually think that that, myth, I really do think that the myth of IQ and the myth of brain bound intelligence, it perpetuates inequality um, because it, it, it casts all those other, um, 
resources that matter so much to intelligent thought, it casts them into, into the shadows. And we need to notice those, you know, bring those into the light and say, these matter. And Mm -hmm. we need to learn to use them skillfully, but we also need to acknowledge that differences in the accessibility of those resources makes a huge difference in how well mm-hmm. people are able to think. And we, we need to acknowledge that and remedy it, but, uh, but that start, it starts by, by acknowledging that that plays such a huge role. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And things, you know, things, concrete things teachers could do, if, especially if you teach in, in a setting like this is bring nature into the classroom. Um, when listening to that piece, I was like, okay, Mm-hmm. I am going, there's a little lady who, who has this amazing uh, plant store in this stall in, in downtown DC. And I'm like, I am, I am visiting her. I'm bringing a big, <laughs> but a major budget um, for putting more, more plants inside the home. Um, yeah, but I, I think that. the other thing that you talked about too, was, was things that teachers could, could bring, or even ask students to bring into the classroom mm-hmm. that mm-hmm. really uh, sort of affirms their identity, affirms mm-hmm. who they are, shows that they belong um that that whole section you have about you know thinking with your surroundings that's that's a thing that's again a thing that the best teachers already know intuitively they're going to put flags up from the different countries that kids maybe are from or you know Mm. different things like that um but you you know that piece the research again behind um bringing in artifacts into the classroom that that uh, affirm students identity i think is is a great strategy that teachers can use I, i really appreciated that Yes. Yeah. Again, you're right. Teachers, many teachers have found their way to that already, but it's, it's always, it's nice to know that there's, there's science behind Mm -hmm. it. And that Mm -hmm. is something I've incorporated into my own office that um, it used to be a pretty minimalist space, but I now have reminders of, you know, who I am in that space, because we have so many identities, so many roles. And so it really, what you see around you as you're doing your thinking really primes you really it primes you to think in certain ways and so I have tokens of both my identity as a writer and a thinker and then also tokens of the groups to which I belong and it I really um I think it 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 really creates a space in which um a different kind of thinking can happen when you surround yourself with those with those cues and there was an interesting kerfuffle on teacher twitter a few months ago where somebody had posted a thread talking about classroom decoration. And there, it was really interesting that at first there was sort of like this, like shame being cast on people who spent so much time decorating their classroom and like the sort of like seen as like this superficial shallow endeavor. And then more and more people came in and started citing some of the research that you also cite in your book about how like, you know, obviously it's not about just putting like frillies and posters or whatever, but, but to your point, the way that you curate and design a space prompts certain things, it fires certain responses, and it, it plays a, a big role, especially when it comes to creating that identity and belonging. And there is so much conversation in education about like, we're going to build a culture and you have to have a classroom community. But in terms of like tangible, practical things, sometimes people are a little light on how that can happen. And that seems to me like such an easy one of having students bring in artifacts or bringing things that, um, and, and as somebody who isn't much of, a, of an Etsy person in terms of decorating. That's been really helpful to me. I had my students make memes about the content that we had in class last year. And I had this meme board that I posted and it became a site where we kind of created the shared class sort of identity and, you know, using students bringing in their, their home literacies of, of creating memes. Um, so it just, it's really fascinating to me that things that, again, 
maybe on the surface might seem superficial. Once you start looking at the research and you start being really intentional about the way that you design things, it makes a really big difference. Um, and that that notion of design is is one that we talk a lot about in our in our book. And I'm curious um, if you encountered anything like uh, either about design thinking or the design of, of products or anything like that that ties into the extended mind in terms of like thinking about the the user and those embodied cognitions and extended mind tools that we have that made a product or a company or a school really successful? Interesting. I mean, the, the association that comes to mind for me is that, um, and this is kind of something I, I um, alluded to in the, in the, the conclusion where I kind of try to draw some general principles of, mm-hmm. okay, now that we've reviewed all this research about the extended mind, what, what is it, what does it mean to really apply these in in real life? And I think um, one way you could you could conceptualize that is that teachers are really context creators. You know, they're situation creators, and that's so different from thinking of you know um, teach well the old model of of like filling students' minds with information yeah. or you know what you're really doing is creating a space um, sometimes a physical literal space but sometimes a relational space you know or sometimes a space in which bodies can feel comfortable and can move around um, that promotes intelligent thinking. And so teachers are really designers. They're like the ultimate designers because Mm -hmm. they are designing the places where students think, and that has such an impact on how well they think. And so I I think it's potentially very empowering to think that like, you know, that's, that's, that's part of your role as a teacher is to create, uh, create as, as felicitous and fruitful a context as possible for your students to think in. Um, So that's, that's how I think about the design piece. Mm, Love that. Trevor's going crazy. People can't see this because we're, this is only audio, but uh, (laughs) when we, when, when, well, he's, he's feeling super vindicated. So I have to share this story that we, we have these shifts in chapter two of our book shifts for sort of the future of learning. And, you know, we had like student as kind of the historically student as receiver of knowledge, teacher as sort of deliverer of knowledge. And what's the shift, you know, students as director of their own learning teacher Mm. as, and Mm. I think, I had curator and Trevor was like, I feel very strongly about the word designer. I didn't know if you remembered that. <laughs> That's funny. Did you get your way, Trevor? He did. He did. I was like, well, if, you, if somebody feels very strongly and they, they with me, with me, that usually wins. Um, and so, yeah, as you were saying, teacher as designer, he was so excited to hear you That's say that. That's so funny. Oh, I'm glad I could, I could affirm that. <laughs> it was, to your point, it, it's a word that's coming up more and more because it's really all about being intentional with all the resources available to you. And mm-hmm. I think that tip, it used to just be teachers being intentional about their knowledge of the content and how they deliver to students. Mm-hmm. But the idea mm-hmm. that we need to think about the space that we're curating both in a social way and in a environmental way. And, and it's just, it, it is exciting and empowering to me to think about that because a lot of the popular discourse right now is like this binary of like either teacher as Um, lecturer or teacher as facilitator and facilitator to me always felt so passive like you're Mm -hmm. incapable of doing anything unless there are people in the room for you to you know facilitate so the idea of um, and, and I, I actually really like curating too. Curating, I think, I think we, and we, designing. Have, we have both. We, we that's what we did. Yeah. We, we, have, we put, we put bullet points. Um, is <laughs> is really powerful, and, and I think that, that be, it extends beyond the classroom too. I mean, in office spaces, um, in uh, mm-hmm. community centers. I mean, any place where people are coming together 
being really intentional about the tools that you have available to you and not mm-hmm. just, you know, your, your brain horsepower, um, right. as it were right. to, to think about how you can affect change. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And one of the more controversial elements of the book, and I hadn't realized this, um, it was my critique of, you know, I critique the idea of, of the brain as computer, that metaphor that's so common, but also mm-hmm. the brain as muscle. And, you know, the growth mindset has, and grit, they have a lot of fans and rightly so, but I do think that there's, there's some limitations to that model of just like, okay, your brain's a muscle. That means mm-hmm. you exercise it as hard as you can for as long as you can. And that's how you get strong. And that's how you get intelligent. And I think that that can be useful. I don't want to talk it down, but I also think that that doesn't give kids a lot of options when yep. the, they're, you know, just, just working the brain some more is not working. Whereas um, it can lead to a lot of, it can lead to a lot of frustration and a lot of distress. Whereas That's the right. extended mind gives you this whole yes. panoply of options. Like, okay, mm-hmm. as we were saying, you know, I, I could move my body or I could talk to a friend or I could, um, I could change where I'm, where I'm working and that might affect a change in how I'm thinking. And so I do think that, um, the idea of the brain as a muscle that you just have to keep like whipping it, like it's a, um, like it's a donkey or something, <laughs> you know, it's really mm-hmm. limited and doesn't give kids a lot of options. Doesn't give students a lot of options. Um, like the extended mind does. Well, I, I feel bad even saying this considering we're entering the, to the final part of the podcast, but it speaks to the number of underlying metaphors that we mm. use in education and just in life more broadly that are so limiting and so influential, we have no idea. Um, right. And we reference in our book, um, the, the research from Lakeoff and Johnson about how so much of the way that we make sense of the world is metaphorical. And like the idea of being behind in their learning, right? Just mm-hmm. that idea puts linear uh, learning as a linear process, which we mm-hmm. know it's not. Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. how many of those metaphors shape the way that we conceive really highly complex abstract things and we shrink them down to these reductive boxes and lines and it just doesn't end up producing the results that that we need right Mm -hmm. and it's embedded in our language and in our thinking and we're not often in ways that we're not even aware of but as you say they shape our thinking so for example the idea that a the brain is like a computer you know, the brain is so context sensitive. It's so, it's so exquisitely sensitive to the context it's in, whether that's social or the physical environment or whatever. And, but when we're thinking of the brain as like a computer, it's like, oh, you know, it, this laptop functions the same way here in my, in my house as it does if I were to take it to a park or something, you know, it's like, um, we treat, when we treat the brain, like a computer, we're missing, um, so much of what is unique about the brain and what we really need to know about the brain to, to help it function effectively. Um, so we, we kind of need to root out those metaphors and um, open our minds, I think, to other metaphors. And I propose yeah. a couple of different ones in my book. One is a magpie, you know, one of these birds that kind of takes um, bits and pieces, yeah, from its environment and weaves them into its nest the way we we take bits and pieces from our environment um, and weave it into our thought processes. And then I also like to use the metaphor of um, the brain is orchestra conductor, because I don't ever want to give the impression that the brain isn't central, you know, that, yeah. that, the, uh-huh. that the brain is somehow not <laughs> a part of this. The brain is is still the locus or the the center of our thinking, but it's, it's less that workhorse that is, is just powering through all on its own and more like 
a skillful orchestra conductor who's bringing up this and toning down this and, you know, and it's Mm -hmm, like, mm -hmm. we can think of the brain as, as being um, the director of the process. uh, And maybe sometimes not even that, because as, as I was saying, you know, the the body sometimes is giving its cues to the brain, but, Mm -hmm. um, but um, you know, to, to admit these sort of more expansive metaphors of the brain, I think can open up new possibilities for using the brain. Love, I love both of those magnifying conductor. We love to play with analogies too. Analogies are great and, mm-hmm. and they're, they're all somewhat limiting. Um, and so I, mm-hmm. do, I loved the parts where you contrasted uh, <laughs> the brain and a computer or the brain mm-hmm. and a muscle. Um, and I think that's, that really sort of teases those things out. Um, I, the very last sentence, the very last two sentences are exquisite. I'm not going to tell listeners, you have to go buy the book, um, but your very last two words I don't know if you're teeing up your next book or not, um, but mm. the very last two words are extended heart. So mm. you, you mm. end a book called The Extended Mind with the words extended heart. Mm-hmm. So without revealing the conclusion too much. Um, Julie, you what, sneaky, what, sneaky one. What can, what can you tell us about why you decided to, mm. to sort of end the book with those words? Yeah, well, that goes back to our discussion about inequality, really, because mm-hmm. um, a a strictly brain brown, brain bound understanding of thinking and of human nature, I think, leads us to down some very. It can lead us down some very dark paths in terms of ranking people according mm-hmm. to this this um, um, very limited notion of intelligence and um, determining people's opportunities on that on that basis, mm-hmm. whereas when we see that we're all creatures of the world, you know, and we are embedded in the world and we're embedded in social networks and we're located in physical spaces and we're, we're animals who have bodies, you know, we're not machines. Then that, I think that has to touch your heart in the sense that um, you have to, then you're understanding other people as whole human beings and not as an IQ score, Mm -hmm. you know? So Mm -hmm. to me, the extended mind is, it's a theory of how thinking works and a very interesting theory, but it's also a theory about human nature and one that's Mm. a lot more expansive and inclusive and optimistic than this very narrow pinched idea that we often apply about people being brains and brains that you can rank on a, on some kind of scale, you know, which Mm. is, is a, a understanding of human nature that I just reject. Mm-hmm. And how beautiful uh, of the the value of debate, the value of uh, disagreeing with people, and you can still super respect them, and you can actually do some of uh, your best thinking when you do disagree uh, mm-hmm. with people. So mm-hmm. let us let us as Americans take heart to that and <laughs> yeah. and try and have more conversations around these things. I think that's really wonderful. Um, well, Annie, where can people find you? You're everywhere, but where's the best place uh, for people to find you and your work? Yes. Well, I'd love to hear from teachers and, and every, and others, but um, especially teachers on Twitter. My handle is at Annie Murphy Paul. Um, I have just launched a newsletter, which um, I it's hope will I, I endorse, <laughs> <laughs> which I hope will be a place where I can continue to explore some of these themes, because believe it or not, as long and dense as that book is, I didn't get through all the, mm-hmm. all the points mm-hmm. that, that, you know, I think one could make about the extended mind and, and very excitingly to me, there continues to be so much new research on embodied cognition, situated mm-hmm. cognition, socially distributed cognition. It's like really, 
I think it's where it, it, you know, the future lies in thinking outside that's the right. brain. I say that in the book. Right. And so, and I really see science going in that direction. So that's a place where hopefully I can explore that and share it with readers. Beautiful. Awesome. Well, thank you so much for coming and expanding our minds as we discuss <laughs> um, the power of extending our minds. And we really appreciate your time. Oh, thank you guys. This has been so much fun. Thanks for tuning in to this episode of Conceptually Speaking. We hope you enjoyed the conversation and are coming away with a stronger grasp of the concepts and mental models that help us to understand our world. If you like this podcast, please like, comment, or subscribe on your favorite platform and join our community by visiting learningthattransfers.com.